from yesterday's innovations to tomorrow's technologies, this is MarketScale's EdTech Today with your host, Kevin Hogan. Okay, welcome to this very special episode. Uh, I've been doing over 50 of these interviews now since May, talking with EdTech executives about their response to the pandemic. No two bigger names, though, than the two folks I have on the line here today, Sal Khan. Khan Academy, probably heard of it, and Wintraub, uh, Director of Social Innovation for AT&T Foundation, that little uh, telco company uh, that you may have heard of. So thank you both for joining me here today. Great to be here. Thank you, Kevin. It's great to be here. It's always an honor. And, and I know that we have a, a lot of different news, both from this week and over the past couple of weeks. But before we get started, Sal, I have to say, I, I've pretty much lost all of my journalistic uh, objectivity and, and with the opportunity to talk to you. A huge fanboy of, of Khan Academy and of all the technologies. I've covered education technology for 15 years now. And uh, you're pretty much the, the the gold standard that I think uh, most other ed tech companies uh, try to follow and have done so much work for the world. So just start off by saying thank you for that. No, well, thank you. I'm I'm flattered. I hope I can live up to your your expectations. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will. Uh, but I have to ask you, you know, as a as a visionary and as an innovator in this space, back when you were beginning the ideas for Khan Academy. Was a global pandemic ever within one of the, uh, the the perspectives that you had of how your tools would be used? Yeah, I completely predicted it. I knew. <laughs> <it's-> <laughs> and let me tell you what's going to happen in the next ten years. <laughs> no, I, obviously, you know, Khan Academy, not for profit, mission free, world class education for anyone, anywhere. You know that that there was a need well before the pandemic uh, that you know far too many kids did not have access to for sure, world-class learning in large parts of the world or even in the U.S., not even learning. And that even when they did have access, we know that most schools kind of have a one-pace, one-size-fits-all. A lot of kids don't have the opportunity to get the help, the remediation, to be able to learn at their own time and pace. So that was always the opportunity for Khan Academy, what we've been working on for the last over a decade. I mean, it's been 16, almost 17 years since I started tutoring my cousins uh, back in the day. Uh, But you, you know, none of us could have foreseen. I, I mean, I remember watching the news around, you know, end of 2019. Oh, wow, how unfortunate. There's a pandemic. And, you know, maybe it's going to be like SARS or bird flu or whatever else or swine yeah. flu. And then uh, you, you fast forward to February of 2020, which now feels like a lifetime ago. And we started, started seeing our, our traffic pick up in Asia. And I remember our team saying, why is that happening? What, what's going on in Asia? And then I got a letter from a teacher in South Korea saying how he was using Khan Academy to keep his kids learning during their nationwide school closures. And that was the first time that I actually had learned about the nationwide school closures. And I was like, that's wild that a whole country yeah. has shut down its schools. And then we said, okay, that explains why we're seeing the traffic in Japan and in China. And then we know a week or two later, by mid-March, California, and then pretty much shortly thereafter, the rest of the U.S. and much of the world was shutting down. And yeah, you know, it, it was clear once, once we started to think that the U.S. was going to shut down, it was one of those moments where you kind of look left and look right and you say, I think this is going to be us because people are going to need something that is clearly online but also accessible from home, works with teachers and teacher tools and aligned to standards, has efficacy research behind it, is accessible, we're free, um, is trusted, et cetera. So we started just doing kind of a war room effort. First of all, make sure that our, our servers could stay up. Uh, you could imagine with tens or 
already is tangible is going to go possibly 20, 30 million people hitting it, doing practice regularly day in, day out, make sure that keep up with that. And then start trying to accelerate content training for parents and teachers. And we saw that happen. Uh, the traffic, you know, normal times, normal school days, we have about 30 million learning minutes a day. We saw that go to about 85 or 90 million during the spring. Wow. Yeah. And, and uh, how about for you? I mean, mid March, it seemed here in the States, and more specifically, Friday the 13th for a lot of uh, school district uh, tech directors was that day where, as Sal was saying, it's like a whole country was shut down. And now the, the entirety of 15,000 school districts in the United States are going to shut down. Uh, but they made the pivot and, and they did it. Uh, talk a little bit about your experience with AT&T, because I know a lot of those tech directors, um, their, their first calls were to their, uh, their Internet providers and to their, their telcos. Absolutely, absolutely. And we, um, Kevin, we felt so, so fortunate in that we had a deep legacy of commitment to, you know, those tech directors you mentioned, to organizations like Khan Academy. I mean, since 2008, AT&T has invested $600 million in organizations helping to improve student outcomes, many of which were in the ed tech space. So as soon as it was clear what the impacts were going to be on education in the U.S. and beyond, um, we very swiftly created a distance learning family connections fund, um, a $10 million fund to help the most, you know, incredible education organizations like Khan Academy. They were our first contribution to meet what we knew would be an unbelievably increased need for their services. Um, so, you know, that $10 million, again, it went to Khan, it went to other, you know, organizations that are now household names organizations like Caribou and Common Sense Media, that certainly families, teachers, and students relied on pre-pandemic, um, but they are you know, absolutely a lifeline for education um, and tools for connectedness uh, for people all across the country and beyond today. Yeah, it's one of those things um, when you talk about access and talk about digital equity, and we've, we've spoken about it for years, and it's, it's part of, I know Khan Academy's uh, mission in terms of uh, getting content that's available to anybody and everybody. But it always seemed that, you know, we'd go to ed tech conferences or you listen to TED Talks and it was always kind of a conceptual sort of thing. Like, how do we solve the digital equity gap? Um, again, March 13th, you had tech directors solving the digital equity gap by getting into their cars and driving hotspots to kids in their houses, right? Like real concrete things seem to begin to, to take place. And again, with AT&T's efforts and uh, I know Khan Academy has has responded with a lot of extra uh, programs. Uh, let's talk about the spring a little bit. Uh, Sal, did you see when we kind of moved from concept to reality in terms of trying to address students um, that didn't have access, or even the ones who who did but were still in uh, in, in sort of in a, in, in a bad spot? Uh, any surprises along the way? Yeah, I, I mean, well, some of the things weren't so surprising, you know. The, the lack of digital access became a major issue. You know, I think the country's actually done a decent job in the, in the school system, physically in the school buildings, but then the at-home access. And, you know, I know Anne and her colleagues at AT&T have done incredible work trying to get it to students uh, and supporting organizations like ours. It's been invaluable in terms of, of being able to just, you know, frankly, stay up and running uh, during this time. I think the, the, the one surprise for me was that in many cases, even when there were these heroic efforts to get the access, 
some of these large school districts distributed hundreds of thousands of laptops, worked with the local telecom carriers to get either lo- actually free during the spring internet access. Um, there were still 10, 20% of kids that weren't engaged. Uh, and, you, you know, that's been a little bit of a question. I actually talked earlier today to the assistant superintendent at Detroit Public Schools, and I was just trying to get into her head about, or, or what she's understanding about why these kids aren't able to engage. And there's a lot, it, it turns out there's a lot of dimensions there, but that made it even starker in my mind how, how uh, important it is to, to be able to support those kids. I would say on the other side, on the positive side, you know, it's been stressful for everybody. But we've actually heard stories of, of school administrators saying, you know what, these kids, in some cases, certain kids are actually able to do a little bit better in this environment. They are able to take on a little bit of independence. Uh, a lot of teachers have been able to adapt. It's been uncomfortable and hard, but they've, they've been able to move faster than I think anyone expected. A lot of parents are more engaged than ever as well. No, absolutely. I would um, echo all that Sal said and just from from AT&T, you know, what, what Sal mentioned, these young people who were disconnected from schools, um, according to a study that Bellwether Partners, I'm sure you all both and many of your listeners have seen it, came out with recently, there are as many as 3 million kids in the U.S. who have been just disconnected from schools since March, right? So that's, you know, we, we speak of the homework gap, we're all doing everything we can to address that. That's, I mean, that's not a gap, that's like a, that is a canyon. Yeah. Um, what we're doing at AT&T right now, if I may take a moment, Kevin, for a shameless plug, sure. um, till January 11th, we have an open application period with a wonderful organization called Connected Nation. Um, we are looking to get connectivity and devices to our most marginalized students, to those 3 million, you know, to, to as many of those 3 million students as we can. We know that those students are likely to be in the foster care system. They're likely to be experiencing homelessness. They're likely to have disabilities. Um, and a number of other characteristics. And so in order to reach those students, you know, as Sal said, I think we have done a marvelous job over the past many years connecting schools. Um, but we have to reach these kids who are disconnected from schools. Um, so we've opened up this process to both schools and nonprofit organizations to apply for that. Um, so, you know, again, I just encourage any of your listeners connected to organizations serving kids who might actually be really disconnected from the school system. We want to do all we can to help them help them get connected and get learning again. Absolutely. Uh, two, two catchphrases this year amongst uh, many, which I won't mind not, never hearing again, is synchronous versus asynchronous. Uh, a lot of conversations coming into the value of a synchronous. Uh, and again, from the equity point of view, uh, I've heard a lot of districts saying that content needs to be asynchronous because there's no matter what we do, especially in rural districts, it's going to be a long time to people have always on 24-7 access to the Internet. And even if you have a big pipe to your house, maybe you have six kids in, in, in your house and you might not have the device that you could use it always on. So obviously Khan Academy has been asynchronous, um, right? And your flip classroom before there was a flip classroom. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on the values in a, in a remote learning setup of synchronous versus asynchronous? Yeah. You know, even before COVID hit, what we've been preaching, what we just alluded to is that, you know, the best use of, if we go back, you know, to, to 
2000 years, there's no technology. Yes. The way to disseminate information is get everyone into a, a little auditorium and, and talk at them. Uh, but, you know, even before COVID, we've all known there's a lot of education research. When, when human beings come into the room together, it's not the, a great use of time to just lecture at them all uh, at one pace fits all. Uh, it'd be much better if, if some of that information dissemination, if a lot of the practice can happen asynchronously, to your point, at a student's own time and pace, so that when people get into a room together, they can have more human-to-human engagement. It could be teachers uh, doing more focus interventions with kids who are stuck on something. It could be getting the students to work together to collaborate, either to tutor each other or to do projects together, or collectively to have a game or simulation or a Socratic dialogue. And then you fast forward to the COVID period, and it becomes even more important because, frankly, that synchronous time, which is now on video conference, it's kids' only lifeline for a lot of cases to socialization outside of their house. And so, uh, you know, a lot of what you just talked about that COVID has catalyzed that, like, look, a lot of the content delivery and even a lot of that practice can happen at students' own time and pace, ideally in a personalized way. Um, and then use the video conference time to actually pull kids out of the screen, have conversations, also have social interactions with each other. Um, I, not only is that a best practice during COVID and on video conference, that's the best practice uh, going forward. And so, you know, we, we continue to advocate that and build the tools that, that can support that. Let's talk a little bit uh, about going forward um, and what, life will be back when we go back to, uh, there's another phrase, right? The new normal. I don't want to hear new normal ever again. Uh, but you know, let's say best case scenario, vaccines are here. Um, kids are going back to school to some capacity next fall. Uh, Sal, where do you see um, the technologies that have been used as kind of an uh, emergency triage situation? Will they stick around um, or were they kind of, go back into the background where they were before? I hope it's more sticking than going in the background. I suspect it's going to be some of both. I'm hoping, you know, almost every school in the country has built a hybrid capacity over the last several months uh, where uh, they can serve some kids in the classroom while some kids are staying at home, but they, they can engage with both. I really hope they don't lose that. That has all sorts of benefits, not just for the kids who who might be absent one day. There might be mechanisms where you can record what happens in a classroom. Uh, you can start to all of a sudden give access uh, to classrooms for kids who are not part of that school. You know, one of the cool things we've seen during COVID is uh, students having access to a teacher on the other side of town uh, or, or being able to do remediation, not just within one grade level in one school, but say, hey, district-wide, here's the the 200 kids who need extra remediation with fractions, let's do something with them. So I hope we don't lose that capacity. You know, clearly COVID has made to our, what we just talked about, this learning can't be bound by time or space. You, gotta, you can have a lot of the content happen uh, asynchronously. I'm hoping that that continues. At least there's mechanisms where that can happen. And then that leads to what is often known as a competency-based learning system where Regardless of how you got there or how long it took you, you always have the opportunity to show what you know. Uh, you know, there's a lot of data actually talking to the D Detroit uh, assistant superintendent. They're seeing a 15% increase in the number of kids who are failing classes. Uh, there's a lot of reports of that, frankly, nationwide. More so than ever, frankly, just out of humanity, we need to make sure that these kids have ways to redo their work, to uh, essentially have makeover work 
which is really competency-based. It's really mastery. Frankly, that should have always been the case. If you only got a C in algebra or you only got a C in fifth grade math, it's kind of crazy that we expect you to master algebra a few years later. You should always have the opportunity to go back and show, no, I know my fifth grade math now. I should be able to get the A in it. I think it's even more important this year because not only is that great evidence of a gap that needs to be filled, it affects your self-esteem. It tends to have just a snowball effect uh, for the rest of your life. So I hope we, we have some of those things. There's a lot of things that people are now talking about around personalization and filling gaps. Uh, obviously, Khan Academy, uh, I, we hope people lean on us more to do that. Uh, there's another effort, which I spawned off, which is a new not-for-profit, which is complementary to Khan Academy, called schoolhouse.world, which is on free tutoring. So anyone listening can either volunteer as a tutor, there's a vetting process, and anyone can get free tutoring for themselves or for their children. Um, so I think things like that are going to have a lot more energy and momentum behind them. Now, and from an, from an industry side, when we see all these this, the cataclysm that's occurring here, um, what differences do you see in your relationship with schools in terms of, I know most school districts now officially think of themselves as internet service providers, not just schools, right? So um, you, you have E-rate, as, which has been kind of the standard uh, operating procedures for uh, enabling technology and specifically broadband in schools. What happens now? What, what happens when we see that while that was always considered a successful program, uh, there are obviously large gaps in it, and that maybe, you know, even with, uh, you know, a new administration and a, a, a new maybe federal effort, uh, there's still lots of complications that from a local level to a state level in terms of getting funding and, and how things are funded. Talk a little bit about how you see um, the industry's responsibility and efforts to try to, um, I don't know, improve that infrastructure. Yeah, that's a it's a great question, and I think um, I mean what we're seeing now, and there's clearly recognition of this, you know, in in the world in which Sal occupies, in the world in which you know I occupy in the business sector, and absolutely within policy circles too, that connectivity is I mean it's it's the new pen and paper, and it is absolutely um, vital to have it right in a school environment, in a home environment, and in any place in which um, you know students and and families have. Um, have learning experiences. So, you know, I think that what this pandemic has done, we all knew that we were getting to this era of distance learning eventually, right? And it has accelerated at a speed that nobody predicted getting to that space. Um, So I think, you know, to to your question about how we're working with schools, I would say in deeper partnership than ever before, and also just trying to create all of the mechanisms that we can to get students the connectivity that they need. But of course, that does not happen in a vacuum. It happens within deep partnership, you know, across industries um, and, you know, and with policymakers at the state and federal level. Um, So I'm optimistic for what's to come. Um, I think our eyes are now wide open to the task that is ahead. And, and that's something to be grateful for, um, but it is a formidable task ahead. Yeah. Being said, I think, you know, to earlier points too, there's, we're always trying to see silver linings in this. And I think that the way in which um, it has become clearer, you know, how vital high quality ed tech learning experiences are to solving this homework app, you know, it's about connectivity devices, and it's also about being able to learn effectively online. Um, so, you know, as a professional, as a parent, I couldn't be more grateful for Khan Academy and for other just incredible tools out there um, that have scaled and, you know, really built up their libraries during this time period. 
so that, you know, we do believe that they will continue to be fundamental to the learning experience and serve all different types of learners in the blended environment of the head Yeah, you know, as we come to the end of the year here, I'm, I'm hopeful that people will be able to sit back and pat themselves on the back, the educators. I mean, for all of the problems that we're, that we're discussing, it's just truly astounding um, that immediate response that schools had and then through the use of things like Khan Academy uh, that scores are even measurably, you can even measure them, right? And that there was, the spring was just trying to keep kids connected. This fall, you know, it seems that, you know, some course design has changed and the hybrid situations. But, I mean, there are some great successes that I think uh, all educators should, should take credit for. Um, and it's almost surreal because just to pivot a little bit, um, reading about this week's uh, Pitches with Purpose event, that there are things that are still continuing on, even though we're all stuck in our houses, that you can uh, talk, uh, have an event like that. Talk a little bit about what that was and uh, give us some more glass half full, Anne. Yeah, no, thank you for asking about that. We, um, at at and for the past six years, we have been running an EdTech accelerator called the at and Aspire Accelerator. So every year, um, we work with eight different organizations, they're for and nonprofits, and we put everything we have into taking them from good to great, right? So it's not just about a financial investment, though of course that's a part of the program, it's also about connecting them you know, with leaders across AT&T, with leaders you know, like Sal and all across the ed tech and education spectrum um, to help these incredibly promising organizations serve as many students as effectively as they can. We've also been really, really deliberate with that program from the very beginning to ensure that those entrepreneurs that we are supporting look like the students that they're serving, right? So more than half of our entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs of color, more than 75% of them are women. Um, and I think that that's really led to the incredible success of the program. So Pitches with Purpose is you know, an annual event that we do um, celebrating graduation of these organizations where they compete for additional investments from AT&T. Sal was so kind. Um, to join a conversation at that event with uh, actor and neuroscientist Mayim Bialik um, and our AT&T CEO, John Stinky, to talk about personalized learning, innovation, and you know, all of the things that we're touching upon today. That's very cool because we just we keep marching on through all this, uh, all, through all this madness. Now, I knew that the toughest part of uh, this episode would be to stop I could, I have uh, a million other questions and we can go on, but I know you're both very busy people and I really appreciate your time. But in each of these episodes, Sal, I've, I've asked uh, the executives um, to end on kind of a, a glass half full note to look towards uh, the future. I think with the introduction of vaccines, I've noticed it's a lot easier for people to answer <laughs> in a way looking forward. And you were joking before about not having uh, much of a vision, but uh, I think I'd really like to hear where you see ed tech progressing and these, these different technologies and techniques progressing, say over the course of the next three to five years, say we say we get out of this, Next year, it's a, it's a memory that we've all actively tried to repress and we move on with the lessons that we've learned. Yeah, well, I think there's many potential silver linings. You know, the digital divide, especially at home, is a major issue. We talked about that. But the silver lining is there's more energy behind it than we've ever had, ever. And so I think uh, partnership of government, NGOs, philanthropists, and corporations, I think I'm, I'm bullish that they're going to be able to solve it for the most part, you know, 90, 95 plus percent uh, in the next three to five years. That's, and that's going to huge, 
that's going to be huge for unlocking access to tools like Khan Academy, but frankly, just economic empowerment, staying plugged into society. It's going to make a, a really, really, really big deal. Uh, the other thing that I think is going to happen is a lot of what we talked about, learning not being bound by time or space, ways to personalize, fill in gaps. We're, we, we've had to use it during COVID because of just the constraints. We're going to have to use it a lot uh, as we go out of COVID because it's gonna, it will be like a disaster recovery. There is that, uh, though, that roughly 5-10% of kids who've been disengaged, they're going to need their gaps filled. You're going to have all the other kids who've always had their gaps. They're going to need their, even their larger gaps filled. But then as we index more on these things, I actually think they're going to become more, more mainstream. They're not just going to be emergency mechanisms. They're going to realize, wait, kids always have gaps. We always have 30 kids in a classroom who are ready to learn at different paces. I think you have a whole generation of teachers who've been thrown into the deep end of the pool with technology. It's been hard. It's uncomfortable. They've been heroic. Uh, but their, their activation energy, it's going to be easier for them to, to adopt interesting tools going forward. Uh, same thing on the parent side. I also think you have a generation of, of parents and students and teachers who, and, and educators generally, who have started to, to be a little bit more d dissect what are the pieces of education? What, what is an in-person setting good for? What is a virtual setting good for? And then think out of the box if you start having access to things across town, across the world, or, or something that's asynchronously. Uh, you know, one interesting example that came out of COVID, but I think is going to last, University of Chicago, this has been a tough year from a standardized testing point of view. Uh, they made an announcement in October that they were going to use mastery on Khan Academy as verified by uh, how well you can tutor uh, the, the subject and how well you can certify it on the schoolhouse.world platform for college admissions this cycle. And actually, I just got an email earlier today from the head of admissions. They've admitted a good number of kids based on this alternate way, competency-based way, which kids can do from their house. Uh, and so, it already starts to foreshadow the future of uh, assessment, the future of how do you certify someone, and also this idea that if you can tutor other people, that that's actually the ultimate assessment, uh, and then you can take all that energy and make it towards young people doing good for other young people, I, I, that makes me very bullish. I think in four or five years, you're going to have some really interesting ways for people to make their educations a la carte, go down some traditional paths, and also uh, pick some other non-traditional ones to get other pieces of evidence. It also sounds like something that might inspire the next great generation of educators. I hope. Yeah. Well, uh, once again, I appreciate your time. Uh, I think this was a great conversation. My glass is half full. Uh, it's, it's helping me go into 2021. Uh, I hope the next time we speak, it will be at an in-person event at ISTE or, or, or TCEA. Uh, and I just want to thank you both for the work that you do uh, as a parent uh, and as someone who's a big supporter of education. Uh, it's it's hugely important and uh, we appreciate it. So thank you. Thanks, thank you Kevin. So and thanks everyone for listening or watching and for clicking in. And please join me for another episode soon. Thanks. <laughs>